Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and uh, this is a podcast um, where we'll be looking at more on conspiracies and how conspiracies evolve and what people can do to actually weed them out online uh, using, uh, using various methods, machine learning and other things. RAND Corporation has published a recent report that looks at a series of conspiracies, and one of the key research questions was actually what can people do to um, be able to identify conspiracy theories using machines, that is, computers, as well as putting a human overlay on this so you're identifying conspiracies but also identifying nuance in language. I think I've got that right, but somebody who's going to help me make sure I've got that right and no doubt talk to us a bit more about it is Bill Marcellino, who is a senior researcher uh, at the Rand Corporation in the United States, and we'll be talking about that report and some other things to do with Truth Decay. Bill, thank you for joining me. Hi, Tom, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, before we begin, one of the things that I'm aware of is there'll be people who listen to this who are not familiar with your work uh, and the type of work you do. Um, what would your career look like if you had to sum it up on the back of an envelope? Uh, I was a U.S. Marine for a long time. I took a short sojourn into private business and investment uh, management. And I decided to go back and get my PhD, and I've uh, now been a research scientist, uh, primarily at the Rand Corporation. What was your PhD in, Bill? What did you What did you um, uh, look at in depth? So uh, I have a PhD from Carnegie Mellon University in uh, in the U.S., and um, so I have a, a rhetoric PhD, which is sort of an odd uh, odd beast. But because CMU is a very much like an engineering robotics, you know, kind of school, um, what I uh, did primarily would look like sociolinguistics. So field work with people and understanding at the micro level how and why people talk the way they do or communicate the way they do. But then also um, computational approaches to, to language. So natural language processing, NLP, uh, or corpus linguistics, which is using computers to look at really large uh, data sets of language. And uh, for me, I ended up putting those two things together to understand how and why U.S. Marines, especially senior officers, learn to talk the way they do and how it affects civil military affairs. That's fascinating. I liked it. I had a lot of fun doing it too. The, the coolest part of that is the computer part was cool, but the really cool part was at 45 years old, I went back to the Marine Corps' school for officers. It's called The Basic School, kind of a silly name, TBS. I did it at 25 when I was a, a young Marine officer. Um, I went back through that school again. I spent seven months embedded with a Marine Corps unit of brand new lieutenants, did the whole course with them, everything. In the field, I went on uh, humps, forced marches. I lived with them, trained with them, recorded their speech, and acted as a kind of a language anthropologist. Uh, and that was a great experience. Also, by the way, a big takeaway is it's a lot easier to do Marine Corps training uh, courses like this at 25 than 45. Uh, uh, you learned that the hard way, did you? 
Uh, yeah, in, in, in hindsight, not a hard thing to figure out. But yeah, I definitely figured out the hard way. But a great experience, though. Look, at least she got the empirical evidence for it, which is always essential for a researcher. Yep. <laughs> Look, it, coming to your time at uh, Rand Corporation and <clears throat> what you're doing now, the, the, the fascinating thing, I guess, since... Uh, around about 2015, 2016, when we had a slight change in the political dynamic in the United States uh, with, uh, with President uh, former President Trump uh, running for president back then, we had a major focus on things they called uh, fake news and also the emergence of various new novel conspiracy theories and others that have been around for a while. Um, why is it that, uh, I guess the answer is possibly self-explanatory, but can you explain uh, what the Truth Decay Project is and uh, why it's important that we look at this uh, issue of, you know, being able to get back to some semblance of uh, fact and analysis uh, being reasoned. Sure. So um, our, our truth decay is the words we use, the term we've used, coined uh, Michael Rich, who is the uh, president Rand uh, and, our, and our CEO. He's um, asked us, or he's used, he coined that term and it's of interest to him um, and the idea is that what we're experiencing right now in the U.S. and, and, and also in other parts of the world is a, a couple of things. One is there's this increasing disagreement about common facts. We don't share the same facts anymore about what's happened or is happening in the world. There's also this sort of blurring of the lines between opinion and fact. And it's harder and harder, for example, in news to sort out what's an opinion and what's a fact. There's another uh, aspect of this where the relative volume and influence of opinions over fact has been increasing. And maybe the most uh, sort of like troubling part of this is this decline in formally respected sources of facts. So essentially, you can imagine, not that it was an idealized time in the 1960s, um, but in this one area in the 60s, you might have uh, think about the US where we watched a lot of the same news sources we read some of the same papers. We sort of agreed, not maybe what to do about things. But we all agreed on what had happened. We weren't saying this is totally false. That's totally false. Fast forward to now and I can watch a, a cable news network program tailored to tell me what I want to hear, give me my version of the facts. And I could have a neighbor, uh, you know, half a mile away who is getting an almost completely opposite set of facts from their news sources. And that's the, the sort of this problem of truth decay. It's happened before in America's past and other parts of the world. It's happening again. And in a world right now with massive inundation of, of news media and of media sources, it's a pretty big problem. There's another thing that we need to overlay, isn't there? And that is there are um, other channels through which people get information. Uh, however, however you classify what falls into that term, um, for example, the the application Telegram um, will often have public channels on it. Certainly, the Kianon conspiracy ones that I've read 
um, in recent months, Bill, feature curated um, content drawn from different news or news programs, whether it be Fox or whether it be in newspapers or <laughs> whatever it happens to be. And it becomes the world for somebody living in that particular application, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and we've called that, and other folks have called it an echo chamber. But yes, you can build an echo chamber talking to like-minded people about uh, the limited palette of things that you think are important or of interest and getting all sort of reinforcing same views. And so I think what you're getting at is that in a prior time, maybe we had newspapers and print as the primary way we shared information other than sort of locally face-to-face -face in person. Then we had print radio, and then print radio and television news. Now we've got cable news. And then this other thing, sort of social media and digital sources. And we've done some other research where we did a large scale analysis of news style. We were able to show that, you know, different platforms like newspapers have stayed pretty much like newspapers, a little shift to being a little more subjective, a little more opinion based, but they're still pretty much newspapers. You know, but cable news is very opinion-based, as you probably know. And we've been able to show that digital sources. Um, so if you're getting digital news, it's very, very much about sort of values and opinions. And it's very argumentative. It's meant to sort of persuade you. But you come down into social media and these sort of public channels and places, but also private ones, um, people can share whatever they want. And so there's almost like a, a continuum from sort of more trustworthy or less opinion-based and persuasive all the way down to a kind of a wild west on social media. It's an interesting, it's interesting uh, dilemma uh, that, that people face when they're looking at information. We had the problem here in Australia as well during the peak of the coronavirus. Um, my training, my initial training was in journalism, and then I got involved with accountants and auditors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all about working out what the facts are. Um, members of the extended family bill uh, sent me you know, links to YouTube videos, and I asked them why. That well, they just want to know whether it's correct. It's like, well, it's clearly clearly beaten up. Um, so that that we've had the same phenomenon down here, possibly not as bad as in the US, but that then drops us into what you've been working on with the Detecting Conspiracy Theories on Social Media Report. Um, there's, a lot that, there's a lot on the internet. It is a wild west, as you said earlier. Um, what are the things that you needed to do to try and tame the wild west and to be able to um, get meaningful data on what conspiracy theories exist and the nuances in the language that are used to promote them? So that's a good question. And I'll try to outline some of the sort of basics and use the least technical language I can. But the, so the number one challenge to all of this is scale. So human beings as, you know, as readers and writers, we are really, uh, we are high context and high precision. Right. When I read something, I get the references. I maybe know where it comes from. I can read between the lines. I can detect sarcasm. I can do a lot, but I'm also slow. 
uh, if you think about the scale of the internet and all the content on there, um, even if you had an army of dedicated, you know, brilliant, you know, thinkers, you wouldn't even be able to attack a, a, a fraction of it. On the other hand, machines um, are super fast, super powerful. They can see patterns at scale, um, but they're also really, really dumb. <laughs> so that's a hard thing. So uh, a lot of our research <clears throat> has focused on um, what we might call human in the loop or human machine complementary approaches. And the idea being that sort of what I would call human close reading is really valuable and machine distant reading is valuable. And if you put them together, you can start to get a handle on these uh, problems at scale. So one of our first challenges was getting data. How do we get enough samples? So for example, we, in this study, we wanted um, uh, 30,000 samples for every conspiracy theory uh, we looked at. So we wanted, you know, I wanna look at say, for example, a, a conspiracy on anti-vaccination. So the idea, and by the way, we worked with uh, Google's jigsaw unit on this. So uh, Google, as you all know about as a technology and social media platform, they have a unit called jigsaw that's there to sort of like solve digital problems, reduce harm, make the world a better place in these sort of digital areas. And they sp sponsored our research and along with them, we picked a couple of different conspiracy theories. <clears throat> One of them was alien visitation, this idea that aliens have come uh, to visit the, the, the world and that the government, primarily the US government, is hiding that evidence. Also, um, COVID-19 conspiracy theories for origins. You know, how is it made? Was it made in the lab? Is it caused, caused by 5G? That kind of stuff. <laughs> Another one is... Um, uh, anti-vaccination, the idea that big pharmaceutical companies, big pharma is hiding the truth that actually um, vaccine, vaccines hurt children or hurt people. And another one was uh, white genocide. <clears throat> this idea that somewhere in the world, um, sort of white people, European descended people are being slaughtered and displaced and there's a media silence around it. So we picked those ones and just getting the data was hard. <clears throat> and as a special, there's a certain caveat to this, we looked at text data. So we're looking at, you know, transcripts from, from videos. We're looking at, you know, tweets at Reddit, at, at forum posts and blogs. And I want to point out that, you know, on the one hand, we use language. We're talking right now. Text data is really important because we are linguistic, you know, us, uh, creatures. But we didn't look at, um, at memes. We didn't use the visual content in our analysis. So I think our analysis is incomplete. You know, I think we're going to need more advances to look at things like like videos and how do they work? But for right now to do this portion, how do I get that many samples of alien visitation? And I'll give you a quick little uh, story to, 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 we found that using keyword search terms to try and find talk about um, at scale about alien visitation, it got us a ton of people talking about television shows and movies with aliens. And that's not conspiracy theory language. That's talking about a fictional, a fictional world. We actually had to train a machine learning algorithm just to find data for us. Uh, and then once we had this sort of large scale data set of 30,000 each, we could start trying to ask, how do we build machine learning models that do a better job detecting not just a conspiracy theory at scale, but also show us how and why it works rhetorically. And then also another question, can we detect sincere adherence to a conspiracy theory versus discussing the topic. What you can imagine is people posting on a forum and they're arguing with some people saying, hey, 
anti or vac vaccines cause autism. And other folks saying, no, they don't cause autism. How do you get a machine to distinguish from the person saying they do and the one who says they don't? Because they're both talking about vaccines and autism. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But it, it, what, you're, what you're basically saying is you're trying to, <clears throat> trying to build models that uh, pick up on new, the nuances of human right. communication. Right. Um, and, and, we, and that's not easy to do. No, and, and, and as you all know, anyone who uses like Google to query something knows that we have pretty good machine learning uh, algorithms for a lot of important tasks. So if I want cute kitten pictures, <laughs> you know, on the internet, I can type in cute kitten pictures and we've got great algorithms that have already been trained on lots of data to know, generally speaking, what does a cute kitten look like? <clears throat> uh, and we can also get directions, a lot of sort of like, factual or informational questions, pretty easy to answer. Uh, get me directions for like baking a casserole. But like you said, these more human ones, what I would call sort of more rhetorical, you know, issues are harder. So our approach was to do something, I think pretty, I know it was very novel and exciting. And that is we combined some existing best practice models. In this case, we used BERT, B-E-R-T from Google. So BERT is a word embeddings model of uh, the English language, and it's built on many, many, many millions of, of documents. And what's important about it is it accounts for where a word is in context. Kind of like the idea you know a word by the company it keeps. So because it accounts for words in context, it does a really good job of disambiguating and representing language effectively and answering those kind of like factual semantic questions. But the other cool part we did was we added in a second portion, and that is we used uh, a rhetorical taxonomy of, uh, of English um, developed originally at Carnegie Mellon University by some of my former uh, professors and, and I now guess colleagues. And that is uh, a model that looks at things like <clears throat> being very, very certain, using things like we know and for sure, and it's, it's been shown versus like hedging language like Maybe it's possible, I think, it may be. And that taxonomy language has about 119 different kinds of language to include things like who you are in the social world, different parts of, of emotion like anger, fear, positivity, um, temporality, like the future or the past. All the kind of moves that we make in language that are not like the semantics, but they're what we call the pragmatics, the getting things done part of language. And we found, if we put those things together into a hybrid model, not only could we boost the accuracy uh, and reduce <clears throat> false positives, but it is by accident saying that's negative and dangerous conspiracy theory talk when it's actually not. We also found we could ask the model, this is called interpretability, tell me how you got there. Tell me how you made your decision that that's sort of dangerous conspiracy theory talk and that's not conspiracy theory talk because interpreting models is critical for avoiding bias, to make sure you can actually apply lessons learned. If you wanna go beyond just, hey, telling a machine drive a car and ask it, tell me how you're doing it so I can see things that you as a machine see to help inform my understanding. And that's the two things we did and it worked out pretty well. Is something else with this, um, <clears throat> uh, searching of you know, sort of social media and, and the web for, for conspiracies. 
and that is um, its origin. The, the origin of the post is something that also becomes relevant over time. Where did the post come from? Um, you don't touch on that particularly in this particular report, do you? Um, no, I mean, I can tell you, uh, and like many things in research, you know, we have to work within constraints. You know, if I had infinite money and infinite time, we could do infinitely good uh, projects. In this case, we used a commercial uh, source called Brandwatch. They are an aggregate of social media and they have, uh, they're very efficient at scooping up data from lots of different sources. So we, we picked a bunch. We used Reddit. Uh, we, so a lot of things were um, uh, like set ones. So we searched all of Reddit's history you know, for years. We looked at, um, although we picked a certain time, uh, we used uh, a lot of blogs and forums that are out there that have common APIs or automated programming interfaces for searching them. But then we also picked some things like we picked uh, the pandemic video for our COVID-19 origins theory one. We okay. used a transcript from that. And that's a choice, you know, and we didn't choose everything because I don't know everything out there. So we did our best to pick a lot of data from multiple sources and to try and do our best to kind of represent the diversity of sources. And, you know, a Reddit call, a Reddit thread is different than a Twitter, you know, series. Um, but to try and get something that generally samples what's out there if you are on the internet being exposed to these theories. Did you come across any, and I know the RAND Corporation's done some work on uh, some of the influence that the Russians and Chinese have attempted to have in in, sort of in the US and, and elsewhere. Um, were there any signs that the rhetoric that you were that was coming through in the research for this report was unique to a part of the world. Uh, well, so we did not restrict this to any part of the world. Okay. Um, we did use English though as a restriction, so we used English language data. But I think what you're getting at is: is there an intersection between the kind of malign information efforts? that you know, Russia are, is known for, that China's getting better at, that some other countries like Iran are starting to do. Yep. And there is some intersection. Um, and so I also, another major area of research uh, that I do is election interference. So foreign election interference. And what I can tell you is we did not directly correlate or look for these conspiracy theories and um, state sponsorship in this study. But in another uh, project we recently did um, on the 2020 election, we did find pretty clear evidence of state-sponsored, uh, what I would call malign information efforts. Uh, you know, disinformation is a hard word, misinformation, because you can blend truth, you can say lies. It's, the vocabulary is kind of dicey, but I'll, I'll just say malignly intended efforts. We found is um, there was clearly state efforts to affect the election. They appear to be Russian. They have all the fingerprints of Russia's tactics and procedures. Um, and they included spreading conspiracy theories. So I think, I think what we're seeing is both organic non-state actors. You've got people, you know, um, they want to believe in things. They're worried about stuff. They are sharing and resharing and shaping uh, these conspiracy discourses. But clearly you have actors out there. And they can be private actors who want to make money or have some other sort of agenda. 
but they can be state actors like Russia who are doing all they can to promote or flog them. And, and in Russia's case, it's what we call the, the fire hose of falsehood. It serves Russia's interest. If there's no truth, if no one can really agree on anything, it gives them sort of maneuver space to do what they want to do because they believe it helps paralyze Western democracies. If you can we dip into the work you've done on election interference um, for a bit? Uh, because the thing that fascinates me is uh, we have people in the audience of, in Australia. Uh, I've written things on election interference. There are people who don't quite believe that this interference takes place. In fact, they see the reporting of interference as being propaganda in its own right. Um, how do you discern um, whose fingerprints are on certain you know, numbers of, of, of posts on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere? So um, that's a good question. <clears throat> and so, I mean, one answer is for individual accounts, um, for a, a given account on a social media platform, there are a variety of cyber forensics that could be done to actually identify physically where that account is coming out, where the IP address is. So for example, there's a publicly available data set on GitHub uh, that's been used by researchers um, from... Um, Clemson University, and it's sponsored by uh, 538, which is a statistical and sort of a voting prediction site in the US. Um, and they actually have like all these accounts that were identified as having IP addresses that originated, you know, in St. Petersburg. They're part of the Russia's, Russia's troll factory or the IRA, the Internet Research Association okay. uh, or agency. But then there's another question, which is at the sort of top level, when you identify these big discourses, how do you tell who's doing them? And the criteria we use is that um, if we can find um, things like, for example, in a network analysis. Uh, so I'll just, I'll give you an example from our, our last one and I can share with you and you may put in your, in your notes here, a link to the report. But in the 2020 election, we gathered up um, millions and millions of social media posts about um, the election people talking about the candidates and the election coming up. And this was between uh, January 1st and uh, the end of May. And we used a network analysis to see who talks to who. And as you know, we don't talk to everyone the same. We talk to our closest people the most. We form these sort of little networks of people we mm -hmm. know and don't know. Yeah. And so you can group all this um, talk into communities of interest. And if we looked in the community of interest and we found, um, for example, lots of sources that are coming from Russia, uh, from um, uh, Russia Today or Sputnik Agency, that's suspicious. If we find uh, we uh, a, a algorithm to detect trolls and we find that not just there are trolls everywhere, that is people who are acting, um, they are acting maliciously, they're only posting um, you know, political content, they're retweeting, um, they tend to reinforce things that are actually not true. They tend to pass along conspiracy theories. They have a whole set of features. If they're concentrated in certain communities, well, that's also suspicious. We do bot checking too. If we find that there are lots of bots 
in a certain communities. If we find suspicious um, interactions like super connectors, that is many, many accounts that are followed and being followed by other artificial looking accounts, you can find lots of suspicious hallmark features. And if they're doing the things that support a certain country and follow an old MO, like Russia's MO, you know, it, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it's, it's probably a duck. The, and, and I can just imagine the, the, the visual representation of, of the networks because you have a lot of, lot of clusters of activity and then some lines all over the place. Um, yes. looking, looking pretty much like a drawing of a coronavirus. But, <laughs> <laughs> but having done some study in um, illicit networks, I know what these things look like. So it, it, that's fascinating. Um, once we get that information, and this kind of combines the machine learning study and the, and the election um, interference one, um, and it's possibly not something that you're in a position to do anything about as a researcher, of course, but you then ask a question, what do you do with all this information? What action can can be taken to improve the uh, digital literacy of the community to begin with, um, to find ways of counter counteracting bad actors online. What are the things that come to your mind when you're looking at the results you're getting from the research into, and how things can be improved? What, what are the solutions? Okay, and that's a good question. And, you know, one set of things is what we, we can't do or we're not just going to recommend, and that is to, like, control speech, tell people what they think is, is wrong in terms of their values, so you mentioned earlier this sort of concern that um, when people report on um, this sort of uh, election interference, it sounds like propaganda. And uh, you know, I, I think we have to be careful. You know, I am not in the position. No researcher is in the position. Rand is in the position of telling people, you know, who is the right candidate, uh, what, who should they vote for, or you know, what what should you believe? Those are things we're not qualified to talk about. On a more limited set of things, though, like hey you've actually got actors doing something malicious in an accordingly fashion, or, hey, you know, here are conspiracy theories that have some clear harmful elements to them. What can you do there? And I, I, wanna, I do wanna make a, a clear uh, cut there. For example, we studied this idea of white genocide. Our machine learning model gave us a, a sort of rhetorical picture of how it works. It has some really, really clearly antisocial harmful elements to it. It, it constructs this us versus them um, world and the us is um, sort of white European people in their mind, and the them is brown and black people across the world. It's really hostile and negative. There is anti-Semitism, um, it's racist. There's also this uh, interesting thing the machine learning algorithm found is that there's a whole large subsection of talk about fear about white women being impregnated or having sex with men in Africa or brown and black men. Um, that's misogynistic. So. I can tell you for sure, you know, in an objective way, that's harmful. Or the idea that anti-vaccination is, is, is helpful, the idea that vaccines hurt children, that causes social harm. So clearly those are harmful ideas and harmful things. Now, here's what we can do. One thing is we found is that, and this is broader than our study, we also looked at lots of other research and synthesized lots of research 
on conspiracy theory beliefs and respond to them. One of them is telling people who believe in conspiracy theories that they're stupid or bad doesn't work very well. The <laughs> more you personally attack people like that, the more they tend to double down and not listen to you. And in, in fact, it can have the unintended effect of increased adherence. So we would tell people, hey, if you have a family member who believes in one of these conspiracy theories, you probably don't want to get angry at them or hostile to them and tell them that they're idiots or that they're bad people. That will drive them away from connection to someone like you and towards other folks that believe in the conspiracy theory. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. Another thing that you can do, and if you're as an individual, is to try and validate the concern. Now, that is easier, I think, for something like um, uh, anti-vaccination support. Uh, again, our, our machine learning algorithm, the way it picks up this talk is that the, the two features are what I would call public virtues, that is the good things in the public sphere and public life, and then public vices, the things we don't want. The former is things like health, safety, uh, well-being. The latter one is bad things like bribery, corruption, uh, uh, plagues, uh, pandemic. And so what happened is our machine uh, really picked up on this talk because people who support, or people who don't support vaccination, their primary concern is the safety and well-being of their children. They are concerned with and want their kids to be safe and healthy. Now, look, they may be wrong on how to get there, but that's not a bad idea. Wanting your kids to be safe is not a bad thing. Um, and so uh, we think that being transparent, hey, I don't agree with you, but I also respect and being empathetic. I, I hear where you're coming from. I, too, care about you know, kids' uh, uh, well-being. I acknowledge that you're you know, worried about like pharmaceutical companies being um, unethical or hiding things, that can at least set the stage for talk as opposed to coming in guns blazing, you're an idiot. Um, now the other, that, that kind of thing though, that kind of advice, I think it's harder uh, for say something like a, a racist in our genocide. At the same time too though, our, our, our analysis found that people in that white genocide community, as hateful as our Ds are, they are really engaged uh, in debate uh, a lot of the more moderate ones are willing to talk to other people and talk to them about, you know, history. Um, so, and I don't know for sure, but maybe that's an entry point uh, is that their willingness to talk and to engage in sort of rational debate. Maybe that's a way to talk them off the ledge, but for, for personal level stuff, we really think that um, personal attacks, vilification, sort of antisocial return isn't helping. And if you want to, we can talk too about sort of um, bigger steps too, like things that we can do for, for platforms and for governments. Should I go to that now? Yeah, that's probably a step further because you've just covered some uh, some of the interpersonal things, but what can happen, what needs to happen in the governmental space? And, and, I, and I want to be careful, you know, it's not our position to say the government should in this case or, or Google should or Facebook should, but what we can say is that uh, there are things that we can do at the institutional level to help help with this. Um, we can go ahead and, for example, um, social media platforms. Clearly, if platforms invest or if there are incentives for platforms to invest in this kind of improved modeling, that's a first basic step to getting a handle on the problem. You can't do anything at scale about conspiracy theories if you can't find them and if you can't disambiguate. Uh, between 
sort of the sincere adherence versus just talking about the issue or contesting it. And I mentioned it earlier, this idea of false positives, but that's a really important issue in, in machine learning. And that is, um, you know, imagine we had a, a you know, a, a, a bomb sniffing dog, you know, or a bomb sniffing algorithm, let's say a machine learning that, that sniffs for, um, for, for bombs. We don't want it, we want it to be right. We want it to have high accuracy, right? We want it to be precise and, and, and say, yeah, I was right, there's a bomb right there. Oh, yeah, I was right, there's a bomb right there. What we wouldn't want was one that it was, it was, it did a good job finding bombs, but by accident, it kept fingering innocent people over and over again, if that makes sense. We don't yeah. want false positives where I go, oh, that's a bad guy. Oh, that's a bad guy. And you're wrong over and over again. That's too high a price to pay for finding the real bad guys. Similarly, uh, we found that in this hybrid approach, um, if we do the right kind of moves and import in the sort of human understanding of language moves, we can vastly reduce, more than, more than double reduce the amount of false positives. And that's critical because we don't want to suppress free speech. We don't want to you know, stop people who are legitimately trying to do, do the right thing. People are actually talking about an issue. You, know, you should be able to talk about why you support vaccination and not have an algorithm flag your content as possibly being a problem. So we really think that the platforms can invest in improving their technology. It's a solvable problem. A second thing is that um, I think we showed how important it is that we don't follow um, like a computer science only siloed approach. And I think there's a temptation in computer sciences and for people in the technology world to want to see the world only as a problem of more computing power, more powerful algorithms and more data. It's an empirical only kind of perspective. And we've advocated uh, something that leverages, you know, compute power, leverages data, leverages uh, this stuff, but also uses a human understanding of the world. We believe that theory is important. And that's actually been a long running discussion really for the last 10 years is, is machine learning and data, does that mean the death of theory? Or is there still a place for us to think as human beings about how and why the world works, to have models of what we do or don't do and have those inform machine learning. And I am firmly on that latter side. Uh, so we also are arguing that machine learning development and platform development has to include theoretical work from behavioral scientists, from economists, from people who think about how and why human beings act the way they do. There's you know, a question that occurs to me Given everything we've spoken about in relation to machine learning, in relation to detecting things that are um, dangerous, if I can use that term. Um, but there, there, there's another question that possibly, and I know it sits outside the the machine learning project, but there might be something else that you've, you've Done that looks at this, um, and that is, you know, what role does the education system have in providing, let's say, the younger generation uh, in the US and elsewhere with the broader, a broad palette of uh, philosophies uh, throughout the curriculum, so that when they under when they go out into the world and they're confronted by different things. Um, Differences in philosophy don't necessarily cause them fear and then they don't lapse into 
conspiracy theory land or um, get particularly violent and aggressive in the way they communicate? Okay, so and, I, and that's a good question. And I think I'm hearing two things in there. One of them is sort of what are the underlying drivers for why people are sort of open to antisocial ideas or you know, sort of problematic belief systems? Yeah. And there is uh, some research out there that points to like, you know, if you can solve some social problems, you know, it's, it's not implausible to believe that if we have a world where people have good jobs, they feel safe, uh, they're taken care of. Uh, we, if, we, if we're solving social problems, people are less likely to turn to antisocial belief systems uh, to become, that's at the heart of anti-extremism work. And we have a lot of yeah. work on that, but um, sort of preventing extremist beliefs uh, may, may also involve this idea of indirectly countering the sources of it. A second thing you asked about is what I would call media literacy. That is, can I sort of help make people more resilient against, you know, conspiracy theories, manipulation? And the, the, the short answer is that it's complicated. Um, you know, there are clearly examples like Finland. Finland is a great example of a country that has done good media literacy work to counter Russian information, um, you know, efforts against them. Then the question is, does that carry over <laughs> to other countries? Because, you know, Finland is a different context, right? Tiny country. They've been next to Russia slash the Soviet Union for a long time. They've like fought them. Like, it's a different question. Just because it works in Finland, does it work in the UK? Does it work in the US? Does it work in Australia? Maybe more diverse, you know, places with a more diversity ethnically, linguistically. So that's a question. I think there is some hope uh, possibly that um, media literacy can work. And I'll give you an example. As part of this large scale project we did on um, foreign election interference, some of my colleagues on the project, they did a really interesting effort where they got examples real examples of Russian propaganda that had been used. And they exposed different people to them um, in, in an experimental setting. And they asked people, how do you react to them? And what they found is when, people, when they shared either very right-wing or very left-wing, you know, sort of progressive or conservative propaganda from Russians to people, it worked really well. If you were really progressive and you saw this Russian propaganda, you're like, oh, this is great. It's true. I love it. They were happy about it. They really bought into it. But in the experiment, once you showed people the source, once you let them know, hey, just FYI, this is meant to manipulate you, this is Russian propaganda, for both conservatives and progressives, um, their desire to share it and their sort of happiness about it went way down. And it doesn't mean they didn't have the same values, they didn't have the same sort of political commitments, but they realized, hey, look, I don't want to be sharing something that is meant to manipulate me and people around me. So that's an example of where media literacy, sort of seeing the bigger picture and saying, oh, this is artificial. This is manipulative. This is maybe done being done in a concerted way. That may be a powerful way to counter uh, our vulnerability to being manipulated. And Bill, you've come, we've covered a lot uh, in the past uh, half hour or so that we've been talking. Um, just a final question for you. Uh, where can people find the material produced by RAND Corporation uh, if they want to go and look at the Truth Decay material, the machine learning study, uh, the work you've done on election interference? Sure. So uh, you can just go to uh, www.rand.org 
rand.org, and we have public research available. But if you do a Google search, if you do like Rand uh, and then quote conspiracy theories, close quote, it'll bring up you know that project or foreign election interference in quotes, it'll bring up that. Uh, and I'll, I'll shoot you some links to those. Maybe you can add those as a note to your podcast, but a Google search will get you there. Bill, it's been a fascinating uh, half hour or so talking to you about the work you're doing at RAND, um, and I hope the listeners get a lot out of what you've said, because it's particularly important work. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. You know, we Americans, we love Australians. It's always a pleasure to talk to someone from Australia, and thank you for having me on my show. It was a great talk. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time. All right. Bye-bye.